0: And would you please open your Bibles to Psalm 46, Psalms 46, the 46th Psalm. And as you're doing that, let me, uh, let me pray for our time. Father, we, we pray that that would be our aim, to the praise of your glory, to the praise of your mercy and grace. Father, That, that I, we pray that this time as we would continue worship as we study your word would be about you. Would it be about your praise and your honor and your glory? Lord, that, that, that we would behold you. Father, we thank you that we don't have to ask you to be here, that you have promised that you would be with us to the very end of the age, but we do ask that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would show us who you are, that you would teach us about who you are through your revealed word, that we would see your glory, that we would see your grace, that we would see your great salvation, and Lord, that we would live in light of that. So Father, we pray that you would do this for your great name. In Jesus' name, amen. I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running. And I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. That's the start of the children's book. I know I read it at least as a kid. Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And Alexander's day gets worse as he complains. That it gets worse at breakfast and even worse at school and even worse at the news he finds out at the dentist's appointment after school and so on, and so on, and so on. Have you had those days where nothing seems to just, nothing goes right? Or maybe there's days where the very world beneath your feet seems unstable. It seems like it's coming apart. Where do we go in our terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days? In other words, where do we go when our world seems to be falling apart. The great Protestant reformer Martin Luther, he had many days like this. He had days filled with trouble and chaos and depression and discouragement and suffering. And on those days, he would say to his friend, Philip Melanchthon, Come, Philip, let's sing the 46th Psalm. They even developed their own hymnic version of the psalm. It's a version that we still sing today. We call it, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. That that song that we sing still today at church sometimes is is based on this psalm, Psalm 46. This is where Luther and, and faithful followers of God for millennia have come to find comfort, have come to find strength in the middle of terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days. And this psalm makes that same comfort and strength available to us. If, it's there for us, if we would listen, if we would believe, if we would cherish the God of this psalm, the truths about this God that we find in this amazing passage. Where do we go in our bad days? The psalmist first says, come to our refuge and strength. Look at how the psalm starts. We're going to read it in a second, but just 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 take a glance at this. We don't know much about the circumstances of the psalmist here. It was likely terrible. I mean, we're going to go through these descriptions. It was not good, but we don't know what exactly was happening. In fact, as I studied through various commentaries on this psalm, many commentaries said, well, maybe it fits here in the Old Testament, or maybe it fits here in the Old Testament. One whole psalm, did this whole re Historical reconstruction trying to fit the psalm into this story, but they miss the point. The point of the psalm is not about the circumstances. Right? The point of the psalm is not to first focus on the circumstances. Instead, the point of the psalm, he says, is not is to focus on God. No matter what the circumstances are, no matter how bad they get, the point of the psalm is who God is that we pl- place our trust in. Look at verse 1 where the psalmist says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. There's two important truths about God here. First, we see God is strong. God is strong. Think about these images used to describe God in the midst of our troubles. He is a refuge. He is a place of safety and protection. I was in Kansas City this week, uh, for doctoral classes and everywhere you look in the airport and in class and in the, the apartment I stayed in, it's it's like tornado shelter this way, right? You need to know if a tornado hits, here's where you go. I've never been in a well, that's not true. I have been in one tornado. Uh, when I was taking doing my master's work in Louisville, we were in class to study on the Gospel of Mark, and there's an alarm that starts going off, right? I don't know, in California, we'd use that fire alarms or other alarms, but it turns out it's a tornado alarm. Uh, our professor is from Minnesota, he wasn't as experienced with tornadoes, and so the alarm's blaring and he just keeps teaching. And so what Mark is doing here in the middle of this alarm going off, right, well, he's the professor. He has our grades in his hand. We're not going anywhere, right? So we're sitting there in class and listening to the alarm, listening to the professor, and someone from the school comes in and says, this is not a joke. There is a tornado coming. You need to get to the shelter now. Oh, okay. Um, But the point is, right, is that when the, the tornado alarm goes off, you need to know where to go, right? You need to go to the shelter, to the refuge, And that's what the psalmist says God is. He is our shelter. He is our refuge in the storm. But he's not just any shelter. We see the strength of this shelter, the power of this shelter. He's better than any tornado shelter that we could build. This is the mighty arm of the Lord that shelters you in the storm. Later, we see in verses seven and verse 11 that God is called a fortress. In Luther's hymn, he calls it a bulwark. If you you sing that sometimes on Sunday, what's a bulwark? That's what this is right here. It's a fortress. In ancient times, cities would protect themselves by building walls around their cities. These walls or fortresses or bulwarks would keep enemies away so that people in the city could be safe behind those walls. Now, ancient walls could eventually be broken down, right? If the opposing army was strong enough or persistent enough, they could break it down but not here in Psalm 46. When God is our refuge, when God is our strength, when God is our fortress, those walls never come down. That's because of the second truth we see about God in, those verse, in, these, in this first verse, that God is not only strong, but God is present. Look at that there. The psalmist is not just saying God is strong. He's not just some giant force field in the sky. He's not some sort of magic you have that keeps things away. Why, is, why do we have God's strength? It's because God is present with us in our troubles. It's not that God makes sure we don't have troubles, but that God is with us in the middle of those troubles. Notice what type of refuge and strength God is in verse 1. God is what? Our refuge and strength. It's not just about the son of Korah who writes this psalm. It's for each one of us who's trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can say, God is my refuge and strength. You ever said that? Do you know that? Do we believe that? And more than that, he's a present help. Actually, that's not what the text says. Look there. It doesn't just say a a present help. Verse 1, it says a what type of present help? Very present help. The psalmist included that, 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 that adjective because it's important. He's a very present help. In the midst of our suffering, God is closer to you than your family. You think they're close, and God says, I'm closer. I'm very present. In the midst of your suffering, God is closer to you than your friends. They're close. You draw near them. God says, I'm closer. In the midst of your troubles, God is closer to you than even the troubles are. He is very present in his help. Do you notice that all of this verse, and we're going to see this psalm, is about who God is. No matter how terrible, horrible, no good, very bad the circumstances are, God says he is strong and he is present. Let me ask this. What's the difference between how Psalm 46 looks at his circumstances and how Alexander looks at his circumstances? Or maybe we should say, what's the difference between how Psalm 46 looks at his circumstances and how we talk about our bad days, right? See, what Alexander does, what we tend to do, we start with our circumstances. Like, they are the priority. They are the defining factor. Our terrible, horrible, no good, very bad circumstances. That's That's what fills our description. That's what fills our minds. That's what fills our hearts. But that's not the psalmist. That's not priority for the psalmist. That's not what defines what the psalmist is going through. This psalm is not about how to change any circumstances. They come. This world is broken. But how we see God in the midst of whatever circumstances you're in and how you see his strength bring comfort and help. Next, look at the next two verses. It starts with therefore. Because of these truths about God, therefore, verse 2, therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. So because God is strong and because God is present, therefore we will not fear. I love what the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said about this verse. He said this, he said, with God at our side, how irrational would fear be? I had to think about that, right? He's right. I don't live like that, but he's right. Isn't that true? If God is who he says he is, if God really is a strong refuge, if God really is truly present with us, and that's not an if, right? It's it's true. It's, It's a fact. Since that's true, then fear should lose its power over us. We have voluntarily given to the fear. We don't have to because we know who God is even if the worst-case scenario happened. That's what's being described here in verse 2, right? What would it be, verse 2, what would it be like to literally have the earth beneath you give way? I mean, there's bad days and there's that, right? I mean, what would that be like? The earth is always there. It is one of the most firmest realities there is. Things can change from day to day. People can be fickle. Stuff can, you know, stuff can happen. Work can change. School can change. House can change. But usually the ground's there. Right? Usually you, when you put your feet down, you're just trusting that the earth is going to be there. That's what makes things like these recent earthquakes so terrifying for people. That's what makes these earthquakes, just think about how people have been talking about them. It is unsettling. Even if you live hundreds and hundreds of miles from the epicenter, it is unsettling because the earth is what you rely on to be stable. There's some other things you don't know what's going to happen, but the earth should be there. And to have that move underneath you, that can be very frightening. And the psalmist is talking about that sort of scenario. He's talking about the worst case scenario, as if the earthquake's so bad that the mountains fall into the sea. In California terms, he's talking about the big one right? But he doesn't live in California. He's thinking biblical terms. What is this like in biblical language? This is the language of uncreation. Uncreation. Remember in creation, where God separated the waters to make dry land, to make the mountains. The psalmist is saying like the opposite of creation is happening, that the world is being uncreated. The good creation that God has made is being uncreated. And isn't that what life feels like sometimes? Like the foundation of your world is coming apart. Like everything that God created that's good is being undone. Because what you're relying on is just disappearing from underneath your feet. And in the midst of these frightening situations, in the midst of, verse 5, the threats of the waters roaring and the mountains trembling, in the midst of sickness and pain, in the midst of broken relationships and betrayal, in the midst of depression and despair, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of exhaustion, in the midst of disasters, in the midst of death, in the midst of the world coming apart beneath us, the psalmist says, That if we see God as he is, we don't have to fear. Because our God is strong and our God is present. So when the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, we don't have to fret. We don't have to chicken little. We can find our rest in God who's our refuge and strength. And then look at the last word word there in verse 3, salah. That's a musical notation, likely meaning a pause in the music. It gives the singers time to breathe, but it also gives us time to, to meditate, to think, think about what did we just read? Is this, do, do we really believe this? Do we trust this? Do, do I live like this is true or not? Where do we go when our world seems to be falling apart? The psalmist says, come to God. Come to our refuge and strength in the midst of the chaos. So let me ask you, my friends, where do you and where do I tend to put our refuge and security in? Where do we try to find refuge and security? We're told that we would be secure if we have enough money, right? But we all know money can't protect us, can't protect us from heartbreak or failure or disaster, and it certainly can't shield us from things like sin and judgment to come. We think we're secure if, if we have enough skill, we, 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 if, we, if we devote ourselves enough and advance in our jobs or advance in our activities or if we get good enough grades or if we get the education plans that we've been planning on, but that doesn't protect you when troubles come. We think that we have security in relationships of friends and family and other relationships, but we've all experienced even how the dearest relationships can disappoint us. See, none of these things are wrong in themselves. It's not wrong to love those things, to to praise God for those things. Things like money and jobs and education and relationships. But these were never meant to function as a refuge. They were never meant to function as our strength. These are gifts from God, not replacements of God. Right. That's an important point when we think about these things. These are gifts from God, not replacements of God. God. So let me ask you again, where do you try to find your refuge and security? Where do you turn when your world starts to go unstable and uncertain? Maybe we need a time for a salah, a pause. This this did good for my soul this week. To spend some time before the Lord in reflection and repentance about where am I, where do I turn for refuge and strength? We we want to be people who can sing with Martin Luther. Let goods and kindred go; this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still; His kingdom is forever. Now, there's one more note here, as we before we move on in this psalm, and that's for those visiting with us this morning, who, who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That that I, first of all, I want to say welcome. We are so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you're visiting with us, and particularly because. I know you've experienced bad days because that comes with life. And and I want you to know where you can have security, real security, and real hope. You see, we talked about that question of where do we find your refuge and security. Wherever you find your security, whether it's money or achievements or relationships, that has become the ultimate thing in your life. Think about it, right? If that is what is going to give you contentment, if that is what is going to give you hope, if that is what you rely on, that has become your God. You have turned good things into, in your life, the ultimate God. You may not think you believe in God, but you are treating those things like they're going to function as a God for you. But in doing so, you bring suffering on yourselves because none of these things, good things, but they were never meant to function in a way to give you the security that you crave. And so when relationships fail you, you get angry with people because they're supposed to be there for you. You rely on them, and you get angry. You break those relationships. When when things at work or things at school don't go out as as you plan, you get depressed because that was your world. And so you're tossed to and fro by the brokenness of this world. And in doing that, you not only bring suffering to yourselves, But see, what you're doing is you are trying to find, instead of God, you're trying to replace God with his gifts. They're good gifts, but they're not meant to function as God. And so in doing so, you have actually shamed God. You have actually tried to replace God with his gifts. You have rebelled against God, trying to kick him off the throne and place what you desire there instead. That's what the Bible calls sin, this act of rebellion. But there's good news for you that in the midst of this rebellion, in the midst of this shaming of God, God loves you. And God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be a sacrifice for your sin. He died on the cross in our place as our substitute for our sin to bear the punishment we deserve for our rebellion against God so we could be forgiven. And he rose from the dead so that that we could have new life with him and be reconciled. We can have a relationship with God. So we can know God. He can be with us as our refuge and strength in this life and in the life to come, in eternal life. And all of this is a free gift of grace. This is available to you as a free gift because of what Christ has done for you. So if you're here today and you don't know how to have this this forgiveness and this this relationship and and, and how to have this, this relationship with God through Jesus Christ in your life, we would love to tell you more about that. We'd love to answer your questions. We'd love to show you about Jesus. Please don't leave today without talking to someone, asking your questions. Talk to the person who brought you. Talk to any member of our church. I'll be at the back of the sanctuary afterwards. I'd love to talk to you and meet you so you can know about how to have your sins forgiven in this relationship with this God. And then the psalm, though, does does continue. talks about that on these bad days, that God is not only our refuge and strength, but we also need to come, the psalmist says, to our fountain of joy. Look at verses four and five and see if you could tell the mood change here. There's a huge shift in the mood. At the very time, verses two and three say that the world is falling apart. Look at verse four. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She so shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. So, at the same time that the mountains are falling into the heart of the sea, and the earth, at the same time the earth is giving way, he says, there's a river. There is this river of joy. Can you picture? I mean, this this is this is poetry here. He's trying to get you to use your imagination, to get you to use your mind. Can you picture this river, this full refreshing, life-giving river. It is so full of life. It's providing water to all the surrounding land, to the trees and the people and, and the agriculture, through all the various streams that bring blessing and refreshing, They bring God's good provision. Can you picture that life-giving river? Now, we've seen a river like this before. We don't just have to use our imaginations. The, 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 the Psalmist is drawing from a picture we've seen of a river like this in the Bible right out of the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2:10 it talks about a river that flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided into four rivers. This, this river of life that flowed through and provided for the garden and the land. See, in the garden, this river was one of the symbols of God's blessing, of God's presence, of God's provision. Now, because of Adam, we're not in Eden anymore, right? So, so where do we have access to that river? Well, that fruitful river symbolism, as you go through the Old Testament, starts getting picked up when they built the tabernacle and then they built the temple. The, the Israel built the temple in Jerusalem. That's what this language is about, the city of God, that that river has become in this time, the temple in Jerusalem. That's where God's blessing and God's presence and God's provision was. That's how they had access to God in that river of blessing. But because of Israel's fall, the glory of God, the presence of God left Jerusalem, left the temple, and Jerusalem was destroyed. And the prophets started talking about a a time when God would make all things new again. It's picked up in the New Testament on this day when God would bring about a new heavens and earth, a new garden of Eden, and a new Jerusalem. We, which we glimpse in Revelation 21 and 22, where the whole world is God's temple. The whole world has God's presence. And in Revelation 21, it says that there is a river of the water of life flowing from God's throne, picking up this, this river imagery. It says, Behold, and, and, and where it continues saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Right? That's the, that's the picture of Eden. That's the picture of the temple. That's the picture of the new heavens, new earth. God will dwell with them, and they will his pe- be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isn't that what the Psalm is talking of? And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's, that's this river that, that, that is being talked about. But wait a minute. We're not in Old Testament Jerusalem. And we're not yet in the new heavens, the new earth. So what does that mean for us as Christians? How do we have access to that joy? How do we have access to God's blessing and God's promise and God's presence? Where's, where's the temple for us? Listen, don't, don't worry about turning there. Turn, just listen to 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? See, right now, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of glory, that you are where God's presence dwells, that you are the temple. We get a preview now in our life, in our relationship with Christ of what heaven's going to be like through our relationship with God through the Spirit. Both individually, we see here in 1 Corinthians 6, and also if you look in 1 Corinthians 3, collectively as the church. See, we have a promise that God is with us that Jesus was forsaken on the cross. Jesus was alone on the cross, bearing our sin that separated us from God so that we would never have to be alone. He was forsaken so that we would never be forsaken. He was alone so that we would never have to be alone. There is no more sin that separates us from the relationship with God if we have forgiveness in Christ. This, this, this whole picture of the river is a picture of, of the whole story of the Bible. It's a picture of what God has done. It's a picture of what God will do. And it's a picture of what God is doing right now in you through the Holy Spirit. It's a picture of God's work, of his river of joy, even when the world is falling apart around us. Because it is God who is in, in the midst of this with us in the midst of his people. Look there again at verse 5. That, that God's, because God is with his people, they will not be moved. Unlike the mountains that fall into the sea, the city of God, the people of God, will not fall, will not be toppled. What's the difference between the mountains and the people of God? Why do the mountains fall into the sea and the people of God have a river of joy? You see the contrast there in the verse? The difference is that God is with his people. That's the difference. God being with his people makes all the difference in the world. Again, it's this picture of a walled city he keeps drawing on, right? The city of God. See, an army could come against the city, could attack the city. But here's the problem. If God is in the middle of the city, who are they attacking? God. See, that that makes all the difference. God is saying, I'm in the middle of it with you. The only way that they could topple the city is if they topple God himself. That's why there's these truths of of fountains of joy for every believer. As Pastor Bob read earlier from Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? And you have to take that in the the structure of Romans. All of Romans is this idea of that all of us are deserving of God's judgment, Jew and Gentile alike, and so we are all equal in need of grace, and yet God has provided grace to all of us through the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's no one that can bring condemnation against us. There's no one that can separate us from God. There's no because God is with us through his grace through Jesus Christ. So even if we face tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, we can have joy because what matters is that whatever we're facing, God is right there with us. He has promised us. He has guaranteed us. The cross is our proof of that. And so is our, our, our filling with the Holy Spirit. Our future is secure. And to topple that would be to topple God Himself. So there's days that are dark, right? There's days that are as dark as a moonless night. That's what you see in verse 5. But there's a reminder in the mornings that no matter how long the night seems, the sun always comes up. Every time you see the sun rise in the morning, or if you're a late riser, every time you wake up and the sun's already there. The psalmist is saying, "Let that be a personal reminder to you of God's faithfulness." He's saying, "In the same way, the sun comes up every morning. Is the same way that I'm there all the time. Sometimes the nights are long. Sometimes the nights are dark. There are terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days. But when you know God is with you, there's joy." Look, look, look then at verse six. Verse six. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. See, the, the presence of God does not mean that we won't face hardships. We live in a fallen world. We, we have threats that come. We have dangers that come with life. We Just watch the news, right? You, you see the news. You see threats and dangers of war. You see natural disasters. You see school shootings. You see people just hating on, on our fellow man because of partisan differences. And we see the real dangers that come from consequences that actually do come through elections. But the answer is, is not to just to pretend we're in a happy la-la land and, and God is with us, so I don't have to pretend like that's true. Yes, that's true. The nations rage. The goal is not to try to ignore the nations. The goal is not to try to find some place where you're going to have peace, you're not going to have problems, either, either natural disasters or, 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 or politics or whatever. That's not the goal. The goal is that we would see God in the midst of us. The goal is, is that we would see that while these nations are raging, that's not the end of the story. Look how the psalmist goes on. The kingdoms totter and melt when God speaks. The nations do not have the final word. Your circumstances do not have the final word. Even in this broken and fallen world, everything is under the sovereign rule of God. There's no disaster, there's no election, there's no circumstance, there's no political decision that will overcome the rule of God. And as Christians, that's where we find joy, no matter what happens on the news. Look at verse 7. The Lord, or Yahweh of hosts, is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. We see this refrain. It's going to pick it up again in verse 11 to remind us of this truth in the midst of darkness. That God is the Lord of hosts. God is sufficient to help us. The Lord of hosts means that God is the sovereign Lord of all the angelic hosts of heaven. He is the king. He is the sovereign Lord. This, this, this word, this, this, these words, Lord of hosts, come from when we sing Mighty Fortress, Lord Sabaoth. I remember the first time we sang that as a, as, as, as a worship team, and, and so one of the singers goes, I want to know what I'm singing. What's a Sabaoth? That's what it means. He's the Lord of hosts. Right? This is a common title we see, but we actually don't see it through the first part of the Bible. It really starts to pick up through the prophets and the Psalms, really through kings and prophets and Psalms, when Israel, when the people of God were under oppressive leadership usually, under corrupt rulership. They would refer to God often as the Lord of hosts. And it was a reminder that no matter who the earthly leaders were, no matter who had power, that we see God is ultimately the one with power. We find our trust, we find our joy in him. We see this kind of picture in 2 Kings chapter 6. When the city of Dothan was surrounded by enemies, the the army of Syria, they came to capture Elisha. And Elisha's young servant sees all the the, the soldiers, the chariots around the city, and he runs to Elisha and he cries out, oh, my master, what shall we do? Uh Uh-oh. And Elisha prayed that God would open the eyes of his servant. And God did. And what did he see? the hills filled with the horses and chariots of fire, full of the hosts of heaven. And what does Elisha tell him? Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. We don't see things that way often. We see the nations. We see them raging. We see all kinds of problems. But God's saying, I'm the Lord of hosts. There's more with you than against you. He is sufficient to help us also this refrain, a reminder that, that he's the God of Jacob. So he's not only sufficient to help us, he's willing to help us. Because remember who Jacob was in the Old Testament? Not the best example for us in many ways, right? Jacob was a schemer. Jacob was a deceiver. Jacob was a scoundrel. Jacob was a sinner. And Jacob is a reminder how God in his grace forgives and saves and transform sinners like Jacob and like you and like me. Who will God be a refuge for? He's the God of Jacob. He's a God for all who would humble themselves before him. Our God is the God of Jacob. It reminds us that God is is willing to help us. And I love what one preacher said about this verse. I mean, it just preaches. You know, there there are preachers and there's preachers. And, And this guy, he said, you combine these truths and there's such joy. He said, how amazing is it that the God of Jacob is the Lord of hosts. More wondrous still that the Lord of hosts is the God of Jacob. We can separate those things, right? Yeah, yeah, God is strong. Oh, yeah, 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 God, God, God is willing, it's gracious to me. But the God who is strong is the one who has shown grace and will continue to show grace. The Lord of hosts is the God of Jacob. And then the psalmist pauses again with Salah. Reflect. Do you find your joy in that God? When the nations rage, where do you find your joy? Where do you go when the world seems to be falling apart? Come, the psalmist says, to your your secure river of joy in the midst of the chaos. Now, in the last section of the psalm, the psalmist says, in light of all these things about who God is, he would urge us then finally, come, he would say, to our sovereign God. Notice the change in this last section. We're going to read it here in just a second, but there's a change. The focus so far has solely been on God. God is strong. God is present. God is our joy. God is with us. God is sufficient. God is willing. God is secure. our security. God is our guarantee. But in this last section, the psalmist does finally turn to us, but not to look at our circumstances, but to look into our hearts and say, are you, how are you going to respond to this God? What are you going to do with this God in your circumstances? Look at verses 8 and 9, where the psalmist says, Come, behold the works of Yahweh, of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. The psalmist is talking to you and to me here. You who are reading this, come, behold the works of the Lord. Okay, what works? We should ask that, Right? The psalmist is saying, you come behold the works. Our, our question should be, what works? Well, he explains how or who or which. It's a relative pronoun. Here's what God does. He brings desolations. Really? Come behold the works of the Lord, can't we say? He makes new heavens and new earth. He's gracious. He's forgiving. Desolations, really? But look how these desolations are then described. Right Here are the, here are the desolations. Look at the rest of verse 9. He's destroying these weapons of war. These desolations God brings is his judgment on everything that's broken. That's what those are metaphors for, right? That the things that bring destruction, the things that bring evil, the things that bring corruption, the things that bring oppression, God's going to be done with them, right? That's what God does. That's his works. His works is that everything that is evil, God will judge. that's, That's the joy. That's the hope when we know that we have a just and holy God. See, what are the works that we are to behold here? here is that God is going to make all things right, which means he will bring judgment on what is evil and he will restore what is broken. From the very first sin in the Garden of Eden, God promised a way to redemption. Adam and Eve sinned in verse 3, 6, and eight verses later, God promised the coming of Jesus Christ to bring about his work of new creation and through Abraham, and through Israel, and through the church, and through the return of Jesus Christ one day, God's purpose has always been, and always will be, the ending of the curse of sin. Always will be to restore what is broken. Always will be to put an end to such things as bad days forever. That's the work the psalmist wants us to see. That God who has given us the promise of eternal life, is the same God whose promise promised, shown that he's faithful to that promise in Christ and that he's going to continue to be faithful to the end. And he's revealed himself to be the one who is going to judge and fix what is broken. The only question that, is, that, that remains for us is, how are you going to respond to this God? God himself then speaks to the psalmist in this verse. Everything else has been a prelude, and then finally God steps in. Look at verse 10, where God says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now, this idea of stillness, we can take this in a way that the psalmist, that God never intended. This stillness is not just a shh right? It's not just a call to silence. It's not just a call for personal meditation or introspection. This is a call to a specific action. I like the Christian Standard Bible translation of this. Stop your fighting. I also like the New American Standard Bible's translation of this. Cease striving. In other words, the, this verb means cease and desist. Take your hands off. Stop doing what you're doing and do instead what God's telling you to do. That's what he's saying here. This is like a parent who is telling their child, stop, stop that, take your hands off, and come over by dad. That's, that's, that is what this verb is here. This verb only makes sense when you combine it with the next verb. If you only stop there, if you only stop it, be still, then you don't combine it with the full picture that there's an opposite action that's supposed to be done, where to stop one thing, we stop our striving, and we're supposed to know that he is God. See, he's setting up two alternative choices. This has been a theme through the psalm since Psalm 1. Either you're living like you're in control, either you're living like you can try to fix your circumstances, or you recognize that Jesus Christ is the exalted Lord of the earth, and in him you're trusting your circumstances. You're faithful to what he's called you to do, but much of it you have to trust him in your terrible, horrible, no good, very, very bad days. You can struggle and stress, like that does good, right? And strive, you can try to control the situations. You can fight with people, you can fight with your boss, and you can fight with your neighbor, and you can fight with your family, and you can fight with your friends to try to fix those things that are broken. Or you could recognize that there's one God, and I'm not him, right? And you can put your trust in that sovereign God. Because God will be exalted. You can't control those things, but God promises He will be exalted. In the end, there is no one or nothing that can thwart his plans. And he's going to work for our good and he's going to work for his glory in our lives now to the culmination of what we sang about that Jesus shall reign in his return and and, in the future new heavens and new earth. See, this this stillness is not just about some, some mental meditation. This stillness is about a full life surrender. It is ceasing from our frantic activities to think that we can control our circumstances and to trust that God will exalt himself in his plan of salvation, both in our lives and his exaltation in the return of Christ. So let me ask you one more time, where do you go when the world's falling apart? The psalmist says, you got two choices. You you can trust in yourselves or you can trust in God. You can only have one way or the other, and then we get that refrain one last time. Verse ten, he says again, or verse eleven, he says again, Yahweh or the Lord of Hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. See, it's like the it's like the psalmist is saying, you might forget this, and let's be honest, we usually do. Says I'm going to remind you one more time, in your terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days, what's your focus? Are you going to focus on your circumstances? When you talk about what's going on in your troubles, is it only about you and your suffering? Do you talk about your situation like God isn't there, either to yourself or to others? Or will you turn and focus on God? He is the God of hosts. He is your shelter, your strength, your fortress. He is a God who is a sufficient help for you in your trouble. He is the God of Jacob. He is the God of grace through the work of Jesus Christ, promises to never leave us nor forsake us. He is the God that is with us. He is a, our God is a God who is a willing hope, a present hope, help, in trouble. And then the psalmist ends with one last salah. For you and for me to pause and reflect. Will we continue in our striving or will we be still? We'll stop taking control and trust with our heart and our lives in our exalted God, salah. On the day when the great evangelist and preacher John Wesley died, he had nearly lost all use of his voice. He lost his voice and could only be understood with difficulty. But in his last moments, with all the strength he had left, Wesley cried out, The best of all is, God is with us. And then, raising his hand slightly, as if he's waving in triumph, he exclaimed, with his last. The best of all is, God is with us. What a difference between that and Alexander's story. Horrible situations, different, different truth. Wesley, like Luther before him, rooted his heart and his life in truths like Psalm 46. Truths about the Lord of hosts and the God of Jacob as his refuge. The thing left is to ask, do we do the same? Can you and I do the same? Do you have assurance through the salvation and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that God is with you, that you have your sins forgiven? If you don't, please don't leave here without asking your questions, without us letting you share that with you. And for those of you who do have the salvation in Jesus Christ, when those terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days come, and they will, right? They will come. Can you and I say, Because of our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ with the psalmist, God is my refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. We don't don't see you as we should. Father, we we confess that. We, We do see things so much like Alexander. We see things so much of just us and our circumstances. We forget you. Thank you for your reminder. Thank you that this, we need these reminders from the psalmist. Thank you that you know that and you gave it to us in your word. And Father, we pray that you would, you would etch that into our hearts and our minds, that we would look to you, that we would cast our cares and anxieties upon you because you care for us. That you are our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Oh, we praise and exalt you, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.